Hello and welcome to the Flucoma podcast. Um, today I'm talking with Dr. Thor Magnusson, who is a researcher in music technology currently based at the University of Sussex and the Iceland University of the Arts. Um, his research interests include musical performance, improvisation, uh, new technologies for musical expression, live coding, musical notation and digital scores, artificial intelligence and computational creativity, programming education and the philosophy of technology. So Thor is primarily a theorist um, and regards things from a perspective of contemporary musicology. Uh, for example, we shall be discussing some of his views on digital organology and instrument creation. However, he's also a developer so we'll be learning more about uh, SEMA, which is a platform for live coding with machine learning in the web browser, and which, of which he's a team member. And of course, he's also a performer. So uh, we'll be discussing his approach to live coding as a performer and using Flucoma-related technologies in a creative way. So Thor, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be talking with you. Great. Um, so perhaps you could begin uh, by explaining um, your background and how you got into the field. Yeah, um, my background, I've, I've always been doing music and music is kind of in the blood. I, I really, it's just part of, of um, how I operate and express myself. And um, um, so played in a lot of bands and studied music, but my uh, academic background is philosophy so I started uh, philosophy um, and I got interested in the philosophy of mind and from there I you know it relates to artificial intelligence and I felt that I couldn't understand AI without actually knowing how to program so I got interested in fiddling around with programming and um, learning programming and it struck me immediately <clears throat> that code is is a notational language for music you know you can you can write music in code both symbolic and signal um or dsp and at the time in the kind of late 90s i stumbled upon super collider which is this um audio programming language it was one of the first bespoke audio programming languages in computer music for real-time uh, audio synthesis. Um, you know, in, in the mid-90s, computers were nearly not fast enough for, for uh, real-time DSP. But in the late 90s, the computers that the public had access to, you know, these new laptops and so on, started to be fast enough and super collider comes into that uh very strongly and it was taught in various institutions and you had some really uh important people working with it and yeah i, I started to experiment with super collider a lot and um, to build uh, musical instruments um as part of a project, I started with a friend of mine, Enrique Hurtado, from the Basque Country. And we um, we started ICSI software. These were experiments in real-time um, performance, improvisation, 
and we were trying to kind of get away from the linear nature of computer music you know the the kind of um, digital audio workstation track based software we wanted more improvisation real-time interaction and we were interested in graphical user interfaces so we created a lot of new paradigms new ideas for um performance um and we saw them as experiments and in interaction so uh, and of course part of that is then interface design um this was great fun and it kind of we published them these softwares online and people started downloading them and they became quite well known over the world you know we had users in the US in South America in Japan and all over India and uh, it was just very rewarding to release software free software and and have people comment on the software and so on and we used them used the software in our own performances <clears throat> um uh, it this so around 2004 I started my PhD at the University of uh, Sussex in computer science and AI and I was working on music software uh, and I was performing with people in live improv in Brighton and at the time there were a lot of kind of movements in live coding lots of growth experimentation and concurrently with that i was also feeling that in these live coding oh, i'm sorry in these improvisation settings that i was performing in with my graphical software i felt that i often wanted to resolve to live coding i wanted to code in real time something that um i couldn't do because um i was working with software that was ready you know ready to play so i started opening the software up and implement live coding as part of the graphical user interface and that was really rewarding and at the same time there was a, this development of live coding in the uk and around europe of course and the us um mexico but um we um yeah there was there were quite a lot of activities around live coding and i set myself a task to try to create um, a live coding language a bespoke live coding language for quick improvisation and i created the ixilang the ixilang is kind of notational language that allows you to live code very quickly um and it's very simple anyone can learn it in a few hours uh, kids can play with it it's very kind of forgiving in terms of syntax and so on and it's quite it's it, it builds upon the pattern structures of super collider and um, so it's quite um, uh, rhythm focused and I enjoyed kind of challenging myself in that domain because I normally had been doing much more free-flowing improvisation drone stuff and so on so i 
created the Ixilang, it became popular as well. It had some impact on how other people made their systems. But it, after a while, I wanted to get back into more sound focused as opposed to event focused um, music. And I created the Threnoscope. And the Threnoscope is a spatial microtonal system for kind of drone music. I saw it at first as a piece, but uh, like a musical piece, but it quickly became a, an instrument system. And I have now released it and I can see people use it in all kinds of uh, modes, um, making music that is very different from how I imagined uh, music making with the Threnoscope. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy how people creatively kind of challenge the software and do something different with it. Um, so from then, I, um, yeah, been kind of live coding, working with collaborating with people. Um, with Alex McLean, I set up the Live Coding Research Network, which, which was an AHRC-funded project. We started the live international uh, live coding conferences, um, which are still running strong. And um, from, but that's the kind of the practical side of my project. At the same time, I was busy kind of writing articles about computer music and i had an hrc funded project called sonic writing which resulted in a book uh, we can talk about the book later but um, this kind of related this all related to kind of a platform that i was trying to build or kind of a theoretical framework of new music of new computer music that i was trying to understand the context the historical background and the latest kind of computer music project that i've done before the the erc grant that i'm working on was sema and we will talk about that uh, later but that is a kind of a live coding environment for the browser and I've been working on that with Chris Kiefer and Francisco Bernardo and colleagues um, in Goldsmiths or Un uh, London uh, Arts University uh, and um, Durham University. But yeah, it's kind of, it's an interesting to, to really sum up the, the answer to your question. I think I've got um uh, kind of my, my practice kind of comes from musical practice from philosophy of technology and um and programming or computer science so it kind of these three fields overlap in the in the work that i do yeah yeah, and we'll be we'll be covering I think aspects of each of them. So you mentioned sonic writing, which uh, we'll be talking about, and SEMA, of course. Yeah, and uh, and you mentioned also Chris Kiefer, who um, one of your colleagues at Sussex, uh, along with Alice Eldridge, who uh, who um, 
who uh, created a piece uh, for the Flucoma project as well. So good shout out to them. Uh, yeah, you're talking about Threnoscope. Um, as yeah, I was I was wondering if very quickly come come back on that because um when i was looking at some of the images and the videos of Thernoscope online um it, it um it made me think of another um project that had been done for flucoma by um another live coder uh, gerard roma mm -hmm. who was uh, who was actually one of the um uh, the programmers on the Fluke Coding project, um, but so uh, he's in the in the um, live coding field as well. Probably know of his work, and um, yeah, he. What struck me with Threnoscope was also these um, the visualizations, the very beautiful visualizations that are on one side of the screen with the live coding and the text on the other. And so he had a similar thing where um, so his instrument was uh, this kind of uh, data driven. Um, uh sort of dimensionality reduction grid of a corpus that he was navigating with his so you had the the corpus grid on a big screen behind him and you also had a little box with what he was typing in to control it but you the main thing that was your eye was pulled to was this um sort of big grid you know with little things happening in it and stuff and so um yeah i was wondering as as a live coder you know with the whole kind of show us your screens ethos kind of thing how how you go about curating uh what the audience is seeing what uh what you want to open up and show the audience what you're doing um how that kind of those visualizations in Thronoscope sort of enter into the equation for the audience and in and your performances as a live coder mm. yeah good question I mean, one of the premises of live coding, as you point out, is show us your screens. The idea is that it's helpful for people to see uh, what we're doing. Um, this is kind of a response to early 2000s computer music performances where people were sitting on stage with laptops and you would just see the, you know, the front of the laptop and you wouldn't have a clue what was happening in the music. So there was almost a demand like, okay, show us your screens. What are you really doing there? And people started projecting uh, what they were doing onto the wall. Um, this coincides, you know, with uh, the fact that most pubs and venues suddenly had a projector in the room. So it was, we could just plug into that and, and we could uh, project our screens. Um, so what are we projecting and what is the language? Why should people be looking at this? Even people who don't know programming, you know, what's the point of, of having code on, on the wall? But the fact is that even if you're not a programmer, people enjoy watching what, what is going on. It's kind of, um, of course, I mean, it's, um, it's human language. You understand the words that are written on, on, uh, on the wall. And then it's about figuring out how how those words are maybe resulting in the music you hear. So even a non-programmer can can figure that out. Um, and then programmers they 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 look at it and enjoy the music. I'm I'm not sure it's essential to to look at the code. I mean the music should stand on its own, but it can be interesting to see what's going on of course um 
this is real-time notation but the the what you're mentioning is is some kind of graphic representation of the code and um, um i found when i was making the threnoscope i found that it would be interesting to try to represent the the nodes or the drones on a on a graphical user interface especially because i started working in an eight channel surround system and i was playing around with um how frequencies could move between speakers how you could put different harmonics in different locations in the space and, and the kind of psychoacoustic experiments with all that and i just wanted to see this stuff because i was doing things that yeah i kind of needed to see it in order to understand what i was hearing and how i was perceiving the stuff so i created this um interface and as you say, it's it's quite beautiful. I mean, musical mathematics are beautiful. Harmonics are beautiful. Scales are beautiful. Tuning systems are beautiful. <laughs> so it just turned out to become very beautiful interface. And that's not because I designed it as such. It's just, you know, nature is beautiful. Um, and also the, the kind of imperfections of tuning systems you know you if you if you for example have um equal temper tuning it all looks very spatial uh, chromatic scale it's all very lined up and beautiful but if you go into just intonation which is more pleasing to the ear you start to see that it's not so pleasing to the eye maybe because the the frequencies move or the the lines that i draw they they shift you know so you get you get um, uh, less equal kind of scales or tunings and and this was exciting to me i i really enjoyed playing with this and i think people also enjoy this you know people they like to see and understand what they're hearing they like to see the drones maybe move around the space they enjoy um yeah understanding the movement of the music through visualization um it also offers me to do all kinds of things like play with silence and performance because um if if nothing happens for <clears throat> five seconds but there's a drone moving into the sound area people just wait whereas if I didn't have the visualization people would start to clap probably or something mm. you know or leave <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah that, I find I find the visualization interesting and not just the visualization of the code but also representation it's almost like representational notation of the of the music so if if the code is prescriptive notation the visuals are kind of descriptive notation and you see that also i think in the system i think i've seen the system of jared that you're referring to and and that applies there too but you can also see look at systems such as jibber by charlie roberts where actually 
you have kind of the code and you can see kind of highlights in the code where stuff is happening so you can actually follow which notes are being played or which filter is being applied and so on and that is that is very interesting as well hmm. so i think yeah i think people enjoy the visual i mean we're, we are a very visual culture and um and it has surprised me actually because drone music isn't necessarily the most popular music you know or or you you kind of challenge people a little bit with that kind of music but what has surprised me is is how how much people enjoy threnoscope performances and i think part of it is the visualization yeah no i, I certainly think that it contributes to making those performances so intriguing yeah definitely um great uh so i would be really interested uh to hear about sema um so which is described as a playground for live coding music and ai um so i was wondering uh yeah if you could tell us a bit about it how it works and perhaps some of the motivations behind uh its development yeah um so sema came out of the mimic project it was a project called musically intelligent machines interacting creatively and it was set up by people at um, Goldsmiths University uh, with a team that has now largely moved to the UAL uh, Creative Computing Institute. Um, but so it was Goldsmiths, Durham and Sussex. And we split our tasks differently. The idea was to come up with a creative coder environment where uh, people could work in the browser uh, writing JavaScript to um, play with machine learning. So it was about enabling non-computer science people to, to play with machine learning in an easy um, environment. And the web is obviously quite good for that, to work in the browser. There is no installation process needed there's it's, you just if you're running a workshop you just point people to a url and off we go we can start to to make stuff so that was that was the idea of the mimic project and our task at sussex was to come up with a live coding environment where we could kind of notate this machine learning and uh, work on the sound engine so so the mimic project is based on a sound engine called maximilian um, and that engine is kind of transpiled up to m script through m script and into kind of web audio so it becomes a web audio um, sound engine and um, we wanted to create a live coding language that would interact with this um, sound engine and enable machine learning to be part of it and machine listening so we thought what kind of language should we create for this what is a machine learning live coding language and we had some experiment experience in creating live coding languages but at the same time we're now in a 
field of live coding where practice is concretizing around certain languages, certain platforms. So we start to see less diversity, less experimentation in live coding because people are using systems that are functioning really well and beautiful systems and and uh, enable people to get into music very quickly so that's great but we were kind of thinking we, we're missing the experimentation so we came up with the idea of allowing the user to create their own language in SEMA and so that would be a language that would interact with the sound or signal engine, as we call it. <clears throat> and our idea was that instead of coming up with a live coding language that can do everything, this live coding language that people make sh should just be very focused little languages. You know, one language could be about rhythm, another language could be about, you know, drones or tunings and so people create their little languages almost as pieces or scores around something. So we implemented the backers in our form, which is a system to create um, programming languages. And you can basically live code your language in the middle of a performance uh, using Stemma. And it's quite easy to, to come up with your own language uh, in this system. So that was that was our, our idea. Um, and SEMA has worked quite well. Uh, people have been using it. Uh, we use it in our own research. Um, and it is, yeah, it, it works well as a, as a live coding system in the browser. Personally, I still love to work and think in super collider so i'm still kind of wedded to that environment and and um, it's great to see for example the flucoma project and the effort that you put into to make your work um, available within super collider with all the documentation and help files and so on but yeah I think I think I've covered uh, your question about Sama. Yeah, uh, well, it's 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 interesting to, talking about the the web browser and and, and things happening in the web browser. So, because I mean, so from my field, you know, as a musicologist, um, but also working with uh, sort of digital interfaces and in, in my research things like that. Obviously, the the web strikes me as you know very a very good idea to to start doing things within the web browser because you know because of portability and extensibility and being able to yeah for example have a url that you can just um open up anywhere in the world and, and all that kind of thing um i suppose this is coming from someone who's worked on the flucoma project which is um you know using lots of ai but is also essentially derived around corpus based stuff so a lot of recorded audio and stuff like that um yeah so i was wondering if you could talk about the interface of the web browser and um perhaps around this question of um because it strikes me that naturally the web browser would be uh 
would be a difficult place to sort of approach corpus based stuff uh, simply because of some of the technical limitations of working in a, in a web browser. I was wondering if you could talk maybe about some of the affordances of the web browser and some of the, the limitations that you come up against. Uh, mm. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, I mean, the positives are that you can share a URL, you can create a little live coding language and, and send it to friends and say, hey, look, I created this system. Do you want to have a play? And people play with your language. And, and this language could be music. Um, uh, it can work on phones and tablets and so on. Um, creative coders nowadays a lot of them use javascript as their first language to learn so javascript comes in really strongly there it's a decent language to learn and and simple and the web audio api is well it enables you to to create sound engines that that are usable it's possibly not the most the most forward-looking audio system i mean it seems to me that the the designers of web audio api had a rather reactionary view of of music and computer music um and the way we do things but the stuff that people have done with it you know working around the limitations of of web audio has been incredible you know so so we we can see really interesting projects already um but the limitations are clearly what you are talking about i mean we're in a browser it's protected environment so you're not even allowed to load in sound files from from the hard disk so if you're doing corpus-based um, analysis of stuff, you know, how are you going to access your files? There are all kinds of tricks to do that, upload them onto the web or create certain permissions or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's difficult. And also what we, you know, typically use as, as a communication protocol in computer music today, like the open sound control, um, you have to do all that for web sockets and so on in, in the browser. So it is a limited protected environment for good reasons, obviously. Um, but it's maybe not the, I mean, it's great for these tutorials, for workshops and to, to create systems. But if you really want to do hardcore work, you, you might want to, use something else um like super collider or pure data max or, or whatever it is that that you work with or i mean if you're doing kind of track-based music you probably want to work in in a door on your on your on your laptop rather than in a browser so it feels like it's 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 yeah it's a protected environment that is is quite uh good for certain things great for you know kids and teenagers to lay down some tracks quickly and share amongst friends but but for more kind of serious work i guess the browser is not the place
Yeah. Well, I still think it's important that, you know, projects like that are, are you know, pushing the limits of what can be done in the browser and, 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 you know, working within those limitations and yeah, because it's, because I do think there is a, yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's news to no one that obviously there's probably going to be a big future in the internet and <laughs> the web browser, but uh, yeah, no, I think it's really important to be, to be uh, working uh, within the, that kind of environment. Um, so this, you know, I'd like to stay on these questions of sort of instrument design and interface, uh, notably. So you've written extensively on this subject and uh, you're no stranger to the world of Nime. Um, and so with such a large body of work on the subject, and we talked about your recent book, um, Sonic Writing, uh, I was thinking sort of how best to sort of breach these ideas. Um, I thought perhaps we could begin um, by talking about uh, your, so your recent ERC funded project, which is the Intelligent Instruments Lab, which you mentioned earlier, um, which I suppose perhaps looks to apply some of these ideas in a concrete way. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about the project and perhaps how some of your thoughts of um, your thoughts on instrument design feed into it. Hmm. Yeah. So this book, this sonic writing, or and the project that the HRC funded project that kind of was the space where I wrote the book in, um, it the subtitle is called um, "Technologies of Material, Symbolic, and Signal Inscriptions." So I'm really interested in how material you know the 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 things that we use to build physical instruments where do they come from what, what are the kind of histories of these materials uh for example in in digital technologies you know we have materials coming from sports or computer gaming or military and so on and and of course in older instruments you know electronics or or wood and strings um and then the symbolic inscriptions like music theory generative rules um uh, musical scores and so on and then the signal inscriptions would be um how we record the signal onto media um something that we've been doing for 100 years now only um so I'm looking into this and trying to understand where we are in computer music and what is really happening and where is the kind of change. And through researching the book and, and writing about it, I mean, you can see how, for example, algorithmic music is, is nothing new. It didn't start with the computer. We have like histories of algorithmic music back in time in different contexts um musical machines existed long before the computers artificial creativity existed before um generative works um all a lot of these ideas that we're dealing with today in computer music could have been done with in in, in past technologies and were done um those technologies were often though hard to reach hard to build expensive and so on so they never reached the public in a way that 
we have today with our laptop. I mean, everybody has a laptop almost. So, so the technology is in, in everyone's hand nowadays. Um, but then it struck me that if there is anything new that the computer brings to computer music, it is really machine learning. Um, everything else, I mean, coding down instructions, programs, and so on, we, we can almost do with pen and paper, you know, and it's, it's more laborious, but, but um, a lot of it could be done differently. But machine learning is kind of a paradigm shift, as you know, we're not programming the, the software uh, to function in a certain way, we're kind of programming a system that can learn and then we train it and then we observe how it works in the context so we build the environment for something to to grow and adapt and and learn and and here you know people have been using metaphors like you know uh, nature garden or we or or training an animal or or you know <clears throat> racing a child or whatever you know that's it's 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 not about setting precise instructions but to create the framework to for the system to learn and that is something we couldn't do before the computer obviously you could try to make musical plants for example we can try to come up with some ideas where plants would make music slowly you know but uh, or animals train an animal to do something like that um, but i think those are kind of exceptional um, cases and and what we're really seeing in music today is, is quite exciting you know the the way that machine learning is is used in the arts so this is you know when i when i look at it from this perspective i really start to get interested in machine learning and musical instruments i'm i'm personally i'm not so interested in in automated creativity i'm more interested in real time performance on the stage in a context with people with other people with instruments and the kind of dialogue with the instruments and so on so although i i really respect and, and i enjoy the work of people who are doing artificial creativity or, or you know systems that compose music it's really impressive work uh, that's not what i'm interested in here um this erc project that i'm i'm working on is called intelligent instruments so we're really thinking about how our instruments typically physical instruments you know things that we hold in our hands how they become adaptive or agential you know they have certain agency they they resist us they they talk with us we have a conversation with the instrument what is the effect of this on performers how do we play together with these kind of instruments how do we feel about technology in our hand that is resisting us or suggesting things or learning from us 
I mean, this is new. We, we, we haven't in our human history, we haven't had objects in our hands that are evolving without us changing them. So, so it's this training process that I'm interested in, in, in machine learning. Um, <clears throat> so the intelligent, the ERC project, intelligent instruments is really about this dialogue with the instrument and, and, and try to understand AI through music uh, through the the musical platform and i think <clears throat> what we are experiencing what we're gaining from this research is understanding of ai that could be generalizable to other fields as well i mean music is just a brilliant platform to study all kinds of things it's like a laboratory for human nature it's about really tight human technology relationships it's about human communication um, between people like synchronization between people it's about communicating with the audience it's about new markets and new um, media forms like atali you know talks about in his noise book you know how how um music kind of preempts a, a new political economy um so so music is a really a, a platform to try things out and and what we're trying to explore in our project is precisely this um intelligence in the instruments the understanding of ai through embodied uh, critical engagement with with instruments the sound making devices mm. yeah that's fascinating and i i certainly subscribe to this to the kind of um sort of network driven idea of 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 uh yeah the, of these objects these instruments um having some kind of agency in the dialogue between the instrument player and the the instrument that they'll be playing and uh yeah that's no, something that i i think um is uh is a very important path for musicology to kind of go down um i mean it's it's certainly one that in in my own research i'm trying to develop as well because i, I think it's it's a really fascinating this kind of organological approach to 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 everything sort of understanding music through uh the relationships uh with with uh with our instruments and and indeed so sort of along those lines so as a musicologist um yeah i find your ideas on digital organo organology um really interesting and sort of how newer practices in instrument design so such as using ai and and things like that sort of challenge our traditional approaches to to organology um so yeah um in an article you wrote um called musical organics um you you proposed um a sort of rhizomatic uh, sort of uh, heterarchical perspective um which is which kind of offers an approach that can be a solution um to theorists who want to work with new artistic practices that are ever more multidisciplinary and sort of expanded across 
disparate networks of, of entities. Um, yeah, I was, I was wondering, um, perhaps from a musicological perspective, if you could perhaps break down some of the challenges that these new practices in instrument design present, um, and in musicking in general, um, sort of break down some of the challenges for, for musicology and how perhaps you see musicology in a general sense evolving in light of, of, of those practices. Mm. Yeah, great question. I mean, we have a funny situation in music and music education today. Just look at the conservatories. Uh, what are they teaching? What are the departments called or the strands that, you know, it's um, strings and brass and percussion and, and um, you, the, the kind of forward looking conservatories conservatories or music schools might have something called you know electronics or something and 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 it's based on our understanding of music uh, and music education which can be quite traditional um and we can see it a little bit i mean we have these classification like you mentioned the organological classifications in the past and there are many of them people trying to classify musical instruments um and this comes from a desire as Foucault talks about you know desire in the in the modern time to classify things you know we were getting people were uh, traveling around the world colonial powers bringing weird objects back to Europe um, musical instruments or whatever and they were putting them up in museums or in some collections and, and they somehow had to sort all this out and put them into you know decide where to put things on the wall so classification is is a way to try to understand a complex field and then you have like uh hornbostel sax classification system where, which is the most used one nowadays and splitting things into idiophones membranophones um uh, aerophones and chordophones you know these are the key things and then you have uh sub branches of of this tree and it kind of works mostly in music in traditional musical instruments although there's kind of a debate whether the piano is a percussive instrument or a string instrument and so on you know but um, um when we have electronic instruments and in particular digital instruments these classifications don't work anymore and yeah you can try to come up with solutions like the electrophone or the diggy phone or something and just stuff everything into a branch of that tree but at the same time, you know, if you're familiar with, uh, as you are, with um, theoretical developments in linguistics and biology and other things, you know, we that the tree thinking is really breaking up, and that's something that Deleuze and Guattari express really well in their in their book Thousand Plateaus, where they substitute the tree metaphor with the rhizome metaphor um and the rhizome then is a is a 
an entity, you know, grass, basically, roots that connect underground, but without a core uh, branch, you know, it's, there's no trunk. It's, it's all connected, like our brain, basically. I mean, there's no tree in our brain. <laughs> it's, it's just a web of connections. And um, I th what I try to do then in, in the digital organics, and I, I chose the word organics carefully, you know, re relating to the rhizome idea, to the growth of vegetation or the brain. But organ and organics is really, I mean, the Greek word organ means um, a musical instrument. We have an instrument called organ as well, but we also have bodily organs, you know, the, um, and um, they are instruments. So, and and in Greek, in ancient Greek, also the instruments like tools are organs. So, um, a harp or a hammer or the heart, the human heart, they're all organs, you know. And so, digital organics is a is a way to try to understand the heterogeneity the rhizomatic nature of our musical instruments where do they come from what are we assembling together when we create a new musical instrument and then when you look when you trace the origins of our instruments we are tracing them back to military as i said before military technologies computer games sports um computer science and of course, that's just the technology, but then the ideas they derive from HCI and now largely from machine learning and machine listening. So we have so many techniques and technical elements that are merging together into our new musical instruments. And that's really <clears throat> what the digital organics is about, is to try to analyze the origins and the trace the kind of history and origins of these things and how they come together. So I'm not proposing a new branch. I'm proposing a, a method of looking at things that is perspectival, where you can come up with new perspectives, um, assemble things into, together um, for a particular purpose. But all that will collapse if you change perspective and look at it from another perspective you know um so it's in a in a way it's a it's a rhizomatic organology like you like you point out um i think it's important to to understand our instruments to be critical about their instruments and to have a theoretical frameworks for it and to actually do musicology organology of digital uh, musical instruments even ethnomusicology or, or what i call ethnoorganology you know try to understand how our musical ideas are in, inscribed into our digital technologies and and that's that's not an easy thing to do but but very interesting and, and rewarding hmm. Yeah, talking about the grammatization that we can sort of read the the, the musical thought as being inscribed into instrument. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating article, and I must say, one of the 
the articles that uh, really kind of set me down the path in my own PhD research. So I thank you for that. It was a, it was a really eye-opening article that I really enjoyed. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, for those who haven't read it, I strongly recommend reading it as as I do uh, sonic writing as well. Um, yeah, uh, great. Um, I'd like to steer the conversation perhaps around to some of uh, the flucoma um, technologies uh, more kind of specifically. Um, so a big part of the toolkit um, is bringing uh, so music information retrieval techniques uh, to the hands of creative coders. Uh, so we've got automatic segmentation, signal decomposition, descriptor analysis, dimensionality reduction, and you know these tools for creating data-driven musical interfaces. Um, so MIR, it's something that you cover also in Sonic Writing. Um, and there was one, um, there was one uh, from, uh, quote from, from the book that I found quite intriguing. So you were describing um, the working environment that these technologies create for the composer um, becomes like an editing studio for a movie. Um, with a resulting division between the art forms, uh, which is fading. Um, so I'm wondering if you could break that down and perhaps um, talk about some examples of using these technologies specifically in your own creative practice as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. The Flocoma toolkit is just a fantastic example of how all these new technologies are coming together and enabling creative coders or musicians to apply these technologies in their work. So it's 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 a really interesting toolkit. And it relates to what I call in my book a change in signal inscriptions. So let's say we have uh 100 years history of signal inscription of music roughly 100 i mean i'm talking about the invention of the phon phon phonograph and the kind of change that uh, recordings represented in the in the music industry so the marketization and dissemination of music through through uh, recorded media so we have machines listening to music, inscribing music, and then uh, producing music, so the vinyl or the record player and so on. Um, what is perhaps new now with, with, in, with the machine listening is, is that we actually have a machine intelligently understanding the signal, not just reproducing it, but, but listening to it and being able to do things with it so what do you then listen for what do you what is the machine trying to understand from the music and that's up to us to decide um, and the flucoma is a toolkit that allows the musician to take their own approach to the signal you know, what do I want to listen to in this signal? Is it onset? Is it certain frequencies? Is it, F I mean, what is it in these FFT frames that you want to listen to? Is it um, um, kind of classification of sounds? 
Um, so now we have machine listening that is able to to understand the signal, classify the signal, do things with it. And we have machine learning that could actually be trained to do certain things that we set it to train, to learn. So in a way, we're in a fantastic situation to, to do things with the signal, to listen to the signal with the machine in a way that we can't because we're not fast enough or, you know, um, it's a it's a different understanding of the signal, you know. Of course, the machine is never understanding music in the way that we do. Um, it would be absurd to even try to do any kind of comparison between machine listening and human listening. But but we can have the machine listen to some certain things. And yeah, I'm really impressed by the Flucoma toolkit to to enable these kind of things. Arguably, you could then say that since there are certain technologies in, I mean, there are classes, eugens, uh, and so on that, or ex objects in the toolkit that do certain things. Flucoma in a way is also suggesting a certain approach to machine listening and machine learning. Um, and that's something that we have in, in any environment, like Super Collider, Max, whatever. When you create a help file or some kind of a documentation, you create an example that becomes, an well, you create a documentation or an example that becomes a suggestion for thinking, you know, in the, in the user. And that is an interesting um thing to kind of behold in the future how people are gonna reject the script of flucoma perhaps you know break the break what is suggesting to you and do things differently like i talked about with my thranoscope you know people are rejecting the the script that i give people here is a drone instrument go and play with it i mean and then they make a a, a 16 track sequencer with it you know it's it's these kind of breaking and rejecting the script that i'm i'm quite interested in um and i think flocoma will will see in the future with with these powerful technologies you're going to see a lot of people doing weird things with it that that you you haven't uh you couldn't even imagine when you made the system mm. yeah i mean and it was certainly so obviously i wasn't part of the programming team so that it was kind of less um though wasn't really what i was thinking about during the project but yeah i know for the um for the developers certainly um it was one of the primary questions was yeah this idea of suggesting approaches black boxing you know how can we avoid telling people what they're supposed to do with the tools um at the same time I know that's that's why um so uh you'll know that there was a a group of uh nine or ten uh creative coders that were commissioned to use the tools and sort of challenge the the presuppositions that uh, the team were making in the interface and things like that um mm. yeah it was definitely a question that was in their minds but that you know with any 
with any digital environment with any environment that uh, we're going to configure um there's there's always going to be some kind of idea of workflow that's going to be inscribed within that environment but um and then there'll always be people that will thankfully go against that and, and challenge those things but uh, yeah it's a really interesting question but it yeah um someone else who uh, may be on the podcast soon who's you know has a lot of experience with uh with using um uh, neural network regression for controlling um, digital interfaces. So, um, you know, obviously the most well-known interface is uh, Wackinator. And so that person's coming from Wackinator, which has a certain way of dealing with normalization, which is kind of inscribed within Wackinator and that um, you, I don't believe you have access to as the user. You, you may, so I don't, haven't used it extensively. But And so when they were coming over to to Flukoma sort of where that use isn't inscribed within the workflow it's there's a normalization object there's a standardization object and all you know that's it's that in that regard it's a it's more open um but yeah also seeing how leaving that path open to the user also kind of um created friction for the user where it was uh, made them difficult for them to make that transition but um yeah it's it's a it's a really um really fascinating question um especially for people that are developing um the the, the these environments are something that you no doubt come across uh, come up against in um developing SEMA and, and, and things like that mm. um yeah sort of along those lines um so this is still within sonic writing um you talk about uh well you you uh you cite david beer's ideas on the notion of the algorithm um where uh which is now which would now be taking on its own force of social power uh you write um so this is how sort of mir and other tagging and classification techniques and what we do with this information are inflecting our our listening practices also um be it across large streaming service or services or more local levels um so i was really interested by that i was wondering if you could break it down but also perhaps um break that down into the context of a package like flucoma which aims to bring these kinds of tools to anybody with a laptop um and there was also the formulation um so we talked i think you may have mentioned it earlier where you called instruments as objects of resistance mm. i was wondering if you could sort of explain more what you mean by that hmm. yeah there are many uh, kind of layers in this question um i think when i was referring to david beer and the algorithm i mean we are in a situation where we're starting to use technologies that are quite prescriptive and if you want to be kind of free of or well i have a friend who 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 talks about people being victims of technology when they use um commercial music software you know because there's so much inscribed in the way that you think and the the, the way the system works uh, I wouldn't phrase it so strongly because there is always possibility to change, to resist the script, as we talked about, to to break the conventions and to misuse things like we do with our acoustic instruments as well. 
but arguably there is more theory inscribed in digital musical instruments and composition systems than than in the acoustic instruments so we're dealing with a world where machine learning is increasingly being used to to learn from users some companies are trying to set up subscription systems so they can learn from the users of the software where they can then um, train the software to make certain types of music which would then help uh, other musicians to to make their music that can be very helpful for novices for example that the software can just roll out a nice drum rhythm for you um, based on the latest trends or whatever <laughs> um, but um, we we then stumble into questions of creativity and and um, yeah we'll probably talk about that later but um, I think when we talk about instruments as objects of resistance you know they there is a dialogue between us and the instruments the or the systems you know they are strongly kind of they have certain agenda or script or design and you talk with them and you kind of try to converse with them try to do the music that you want to do or you follow their script as well and um let you let the instrument guide you in in the way that it's designed I mean there, there are different I think all this is on a kind of continuum really how people approach these things um but the, but any technological object is an object of resistance you know it's 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 the philosophy of the of the object you know and uh, it's just like the hammer you know it's an object that is designed for a certain purpose um and the joke in the philosophy of technology is that if the only instrument you have is a hammer every problem looks like a nail you know um but if you have more instruments more tools you can start to express express yourself differently so i guess that's what what the resistance is and nowadays we, we're kind of playing a lot with this in our all around the world people are making musical systems that are kind of resistant systems like where the you don't have full control over the instrument you want the instrument to have a conversation with you or have a dialogue with the instrument um a lot of people are exploring notions of agency in instruments and in our lab in iceland we uh, we have an instrument designer called Haldor Ulvarsson, and he created the Haldorophone, which is an instrument, electroacoustic instrument that um, basically has agency because of its physical nature. And performers who play with it continually describe how much they enjoy not being in control of the instrument and to have that kind of agency in the instrument and the dialogue with the instrument. Mm. this is something that we're going to see increasingly with machine learning obviously mm. no, it is interesting because uh 
Yes, along those lines, there's a uh, quote by Says that um, he was talking about this the, the idea of interface, and I think he gives the example of two points uh, that are interacting that send a message between each other, and yeah, if if the message gets sent in an optimal way with uh, with no resistance at all, then in fact the 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 relationship and the interaction between those two points just evaporates it doesn't exist anymore um so for there to be relationship and 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 kind of uh, interaction there there has to be some kind of failure there has to be some kind of resistance and um i like to think of it as like a sort of loss of resolution in the data that's being passed along um which is kind of against the whole kind of commercial approach to interface design and sort of functionality and being allowed to do things quickly and but yeah no i think this idea of 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 a musical instrument as being something that is going to push back and that that there, there is going to be this kind of even if it's a digital instrument a kind of tangible resistance against what you're trying to do i think it's a really intriguing way of of, of thinking about about that mm. kind of thing yeah no, it's really interesting i mean human language i mean if you think about information theory um you have a sender and you have a receiver and you have a medium channel and then they talk about signal and noise and so on for between the sender and the receiver but what is it really that you're sending you're sending maybe messages of human language and and we don't understand the words the same way i'm not sure you understand me can you be sure that i understand you you know yeah. it's uh, mm. Uh, we apply the same words, but but we might have a very different understanding of them. Mm -mm. Yeah, no, it's kind of artistic creation as sort of articulating this essential question of kind of confronting our agency and our what we're trying to express with the physicalities of the world and the, and even how it's received by 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 people. Yeah, no, it's really mm. interesting. Um, so as sort of along those lines of um sort of this script that we've been talking about so obviously another aspect of that um which was a concern of the flucoma project uh so was making sure that the documentations and uh, and you know the tutorials and stuff are really solid um but there's we've also had lots of other ways that we kind of try and reach out um to people in the world uh workshops forums uh these podcasts uh articles on the learn platform um that kind of stuff so education of music and and technology um is something that you practice um and and that you also write critically about so i was wondering if yeah if you could discuss your approach to for example teaching these kinds of practices and what your approach is um in that regard mm. yeah when i teach um for example computer music or techniques or technologies within the field i like to present the field the issues, the problems, the history, the aesthetics, the cultural groups that are operating within the field and try to do that in a diverse way, you know, such that we're not just talking about some isolated groups in France or Germany or the UK or the US or whatever, but rather to, to see a global perspective and history 
And to talk about the problems um, that we're trying to overcome in, in our music or technological development, but also the goals. What are the aesthetic goals? What are the kind of performance situations that people are trying to create? How are they relating to the audience? What is the musical kind of context, the aesthetics, and so on? Um, <clears throat> so I give a lot of examples to students, uh, show them stuff, talk about stuff, try to relate it to their own practice. I mean, that's essential, isn't it? You have to, you, you can't just play them some uh, Stockhouse and Elektronische Musik and then ask them to make electronic music. You know, th that kind of music is 70 years old or whatever, and, and they don't relate to it at all. Um, it has to be something that is relevant to their world, their um, kind of musical goals. And that's where you then can try to introduce the technologies. So here is a system, here is here's something where you can do this or that. Let's take a look at examples. Let's so I I try to provide examples to my students always so they can build from and it's very interesting you can you can give them a an example that plays you know a 16 step sequencer of drum loops or something with some buffers or whatever but if you give it to 10 people and they go away and they try to do something with that example you're going to have extremely uh, different results because everybody takes it into their own kind of musical world and develops it and has a relationship to the code or the system in a very different way so i think flucoma is doing that really well you, you provide examples um for us users to develop uh, our music from but it's important to have yeah the understanding and the examples and diversity uh, musical diversity as well try to connect to different musical cultures i mean we're not all doing electroacoustic music um a lot of the experimental music within academia is yeah it's experimental because you're ex you're coming up with new technologies you are doing experiments you're doing research so the nature it's kind of natural that the music is experimental and and new but but if we're talking about users as flucoma is is trying to do or you know uh, recruit users to this the platform you really need to think about what is the music that that people are actually doing mm. yeah well it's yeah it's in yeah relating to to people's practice yeah not just presenting the tools as a thing but yeah really trying to relate to to their practice mm. i think one, one interesting example of that was uh so i mean obviously there's been i think there's been maybe like 40 50 different workshops all kind of different in nature but i, I you know many of them we're in a you know sort of academic contexts where um, people that are yeah in kind of electroacoustic music that are kind of already going to have perhaps a, a vague idea about what 
what kind of thing we can be able to do with this. But one one uh, workshop that I found quite intriguing was, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was in Australia. So it was my colleague, um, James Bradbury, who did it. And it was uh, something like Flucoma for field recording. Mm. And I, I thought that was a really, really good idea because, uh, yeah, it was specifically... Um, you know, quite a, a not a niche, but a very, very specific um, kind of set of goals that people that um, you know do field recordings are going to want to use these tools in a very specific way. And obviously, you know, to prepare and to carry out that workshop, he had to be very, you know, um, open and listening to 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 their approach to things. Because um, yeah, no, I think it's that's it's it's a really interesting way of approaching it so obviously you know when you have the luxury of being able to do a workshop or teaching something to a person who's in front of you then yeah you're really going to be able to work on that dialogue and stuff but even um even in a more general sense with things like the forum um the the discourse forum on Foucault, i think that they've they've um they're being able to to kind of implement that in 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 some way and it's certainly certainly the use cases uh fed very mm. much back into the to the development uh, yeah mm -hmm. that's great um so as a final um somewhat open broad question uh which i've asked a few few of the guests which uh, i think can perhaps sound that's a bit cliche but i think can be interesting to get people's um take on it um i was wondering if you could tell us um how you might see um machine learning as as uh, morphing musical practices in the future so um obviously it's kind of a stereotypical image we have of people thinking about things like deep learning music it, deep learning in music um is like being very wary of it and people having being scared that it'll replace musicians things like that um i was wondering if there was space in the current kind of capitalist capitalist driven music interest uh, industry for mis machine learning driven practices and do you see machine learning developing and unlocking creative potential for us in the future or could it be used for more ominous means in shaping our listening practices and wearing down our creative drive? Um, yeah, I was just wondering how how you sort of see things developing in the future, and yeah, if you could talk about that. Mm. Well, all of it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's dangerous, but it has opportunities, obviously, and it's all about who are the players who are the kind of who go along with things and so on um humans come up with technologies and it is impressive i mean we're interesting species if you look at mid-journey uh, art now and photographs and so on it's 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 really incredible where it's gone uh, and I'm not talking about artistic content. I'm talking about just the technology in itself. You know, it's just pretty amazing. But then you have the ethical questions around it, like wh whose pictures are these? You know, whose art are they training uh, the model with, and and so on. 
So that's that's all very problematic. And we're actually thinking about these things a little bit in our lab. Like if we get users to or a data set or users to train a model and we release the model, you know, what kind of contract should we have with the people who trained the model or whose data set we we um, used? Do you necessarily want your style to be available to other people or your voice, even your human voice to be used by other people? Um, so there are a lot of kind of issues about personal expression that can be kind of captured and and uh, and shared with people. Um, you can also think about the the big companies, for example, that are data hungry for machine learning purposes. They are not stealing anyone's idiosyncratic kind of style, but they're creating maybe a general style or representation of music that comes from the masses. But then the question is, what is it that you gain from it? What, what is that? If you have native instruments, software that is based on users um, kind of um, input, and you make music with it, with machine learning, and and the the CEO of Native Instrument is actually, I mean, he's he's got a vision that is not not bad. I mean, he says fifty percent of people want to make music, uh, but only percentage of that uh, people uh, had musical education. So we want to provide people with the tools to make music. What's wrong with that? That's beautiful, you know. Uh, the more people make music, the better, the happier we are, you know, the more fulfilled we are and so on. There's nothing wrong with people making music. And if if we can have machine learning to help novices to to make decent music, that's great. Um but then it becomes a question of creativity as well. If you like certain berlin techno style you know and if the machine can just check out another track that is very similar to that almost identical you know but different um how where is your creativity where is your authorship where's your artistic expression and that's where really Computing technologies are challenging our ideas of creativity now and our practices as uh, producers. I mean, I tell my students, if a computer can do this, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to be a different from a computer? And that's a challenge for people today and, and an interesting challenge and a good challenge. But it relates to the idea of creativity, obviously, and our historical cultural ideas of creativity which you know in the western world is very much about from modernism you know and it's about originality the idea of the creator the authorship you know the author um the new you know avant-garde uh, all these ideas of that we have very strong in our culture 
and machine learning kind of comes into this space and disrupts quite a lot um but our ideas of creativity and originality is very different uh, from other cultures you know so it's going to be interesting to see how machine learning will affect all that um i'm not pessimistic at all i i, I think it's just um human nature you know to to adopt new technologies uh and things change you know i mean when when we had a soundtrack in the movies um the people who played the music under the silent movies they lost their jobs when with recording the people who played in live radio lost their jobs um there's always change in music but i'm not sure it's it's all kind of disaster or i don't think machines are going to replace humans at all we're going to be collaborating with machines um and if anything you know there are going to be more people doing music than before but as I, you know i did mention atelier earlier but what might then happen is that music is not an area or a field like in the 60s where you had some bands that just got really rich because they produced some pretty good music now we have so many people producing pretty good music and the industry is not supporting that all that mass of people i mean and the the media formats are not supporting that i mean these streaming services are more like the taps in our kitchen you know we just turn off the tap and there's music um it's not products that we buy anymore and and even tour, the touring industry is is becoming problematic so perhaps we're going back to a music where of the town square you know where everybody makes music and it's not an industry for a certain group of people and yeah i mean that's bad for the people who want to be really rich from music but it's kind of nice for people who enjoy um a lot of music and musical practices and and music as a as a part of human nature you know yeah yeah great well i think there's some nice uplifting words there to finish on and also a challenge as well to people who who are uh making music in this in this yeah very intriguing kind of configuration technology that's that, that's happening at the moment yeah so um thank you so much thought that was uh really really interesting um so as always um all of the links to to the various um things that we've talked about today will be uh living on the page uh beneath this video on the learn platform so there'll be a link in the in the youtube description to that page um yeah so thor thank you so much it was great having you thank you so much i really enjoyed talking with you thanks great see you again soon see you later Bye bye